This was one of the most depressing sermons I've ever had to prepare for, the fall of man. And whenever I find scripture making me feel sad, I want to share that with God's people. And so that's why I'm here this morning. This is a difficult passage. There is hope in this passage, but it is a difficult passage. But it's such an important one. We just really need to understand what it is that God is telling us, not only in the big picture, but in our lives as well. Polar vortexes, mosquitoes, acne, flat tires, burnt toast, unsaved files, lost keys, missing socks, thinning hair, slander, spilt milk, long lines, poverty, divorce, drug addiction, birth defects, crime, accidents, loneliness, hatred, terrorism, assault, disease, war. Even if you're going through life barely paying attention, you know that this is not how things are supposed to be. How is it that an all-loving, all-powerful God could have possibly created the world that we live in? That is one of the most common questions that non-Christians ask Christians. And it is a good and important question. From a biblical standpoint, we might ask the question a little bit differently. How did we get from Genesis 1.31 to Genesis 6.5? In Genesis 1.31, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And in chapter 6, verse 5, God again sees something. But it's very different. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the question, and it's not just an intellectual question, is it? The question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? And the answer is what theologians call the fall. The fall of humanity from the perfection that we were created in and for. It is the single most tragic event in all of human history, with the exception of what Jesus had to do to come fix the mess that we created. And so this morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 so we can understand what happened at the fall, what led up to it, and what the consequences were as a result. You can turn to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, in the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's found on page 2. And while I can promise you that there is hope in this passage, there's great hope in this passage actually, it is nevertheless a story that should break our hearts as it did the Lord's. We begin by taking a look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very technique that Satan used to plunge humanity into the mess that we now see is a lie. And that lie was this, the lie that God cannot be trusted. It's the lie that God cannot be trusted. This is a true story. 
It shouldn't need to be said, but it does. This is historical. Adam and Eve really lived. There was a forbidden tree. There was a talking serpent. And while the talking serpent part sounds very strange to us, it may very well have been strange to Eve. But if we reject what God's word has to say about how sin and death entered into creation, we're not just opposing Moses who wrote Genesis, we're also opposing the Apostle Paul who wrote a great deal about the implications of Adam's sin for all of us. And even more important, we're opposing Jesus who also believed in an historical Adam and Eve. So what's going on here in verses 1 through 5? The serpent, Satan, who's referred to as the ancient serpent in Revelation 20.10, he came down to earth to seduce Eve into joining his rebellion against their creator. Having been kicked out of heaven and sent down to earth, he came with such a hatred for God and those made in his image that he was motivated to cause as much sorrow as he possibly could. And so Satan begins by calling into question both God's goodness and God's word. It's a tactic that he still uses today. In fact, think about the temptations that you face. What comes into your mind usually is a question, is God's command necessary? Is it good? Is it wise? Does it fit my day? Or is this something written such a long time ago that's not really relevant right now? And is it good? Is God good to withhold this from me? That seems like a worthwhile thing to pursue, and God is saying no. What God actually said in Genesis 2, 16 through 17 is this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's what God said, and this is how Satan twisted it. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The difference between every and any is the difference between everything and nothing. There is a huge difference. Here's what God said, if I can paraphrase. Adam and Eve, look around you. You are surrounded by delicious fruit. I made it for you. I want you to enjoy it. You can enjoy fruit from every single tree except one. And they should have looked around. They should have been overwhelmed by God's goodness. But Satan twisted God's words and said, God really won't let you eat of any of the trees in the garden? Wow, that's crazy. How could he possibly do that? I think how wonderful it would have been if Eve had responded by mocking Satan's wickedness and foolishness. I imagine in my head she might have said something like this. I'm sorry, are you a talking serpent or a moron? Because your words are so stupid, I can't actually tell the difference. Are you actually suggesting that God put us in the midst of the Garden of Eden, surrounded by all this delicious food, in order to starve us out for some reason? It's been nice talking to you, serpent. And then walked away. But unfortunately, Eve tried to correct the serpent's insinuation, even though he had no interest in the truth. And that's the problem. And in so doing, Eve added something that God had not said. She said, neither shall you touch it. You can't even touch the fruit, lest you die. And we don't know exactly why Eve added that extra command. But you know, there's a deeper problem here that we shouldn't miss. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the first conversation about God. God is our creator. He is king of kings and lord of lords. 
He deserves, he is worthy of our praise and our obedience. And so when God speaks, even to us today, when God speaks through his word, the only appropriate response is that we listen. And when God gives us a command, the only appropriate response is that we obey. But that's not what Eve did. Instead, she discussed God's commands with Satan. So imagine four-year-old twins. They've just been told by their mom that it's bedtime. And one of the twins looks at the other and said, did mom really just say we're supposed to go to bed? I mean, that seems like a crazy idea. Most of the best programming is on after 9 p.m. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think she's really thought this through. The truth is that you and I are not equal to God. It is one thing to seek to understand God and his will. It is a completely different thing when we sit in judgment of it. And you and I are tempted to do that all the time. We sit in judgment of what God's word has said. And that's what Satan wants us to do. He wanted Eve to evaluate what God had said. And you and I, we need to remember that while it is good and it is right to ask questions of God, just like any child would of their parent, it is not appropriate for us to approach God as if he needed to answer for himself. He needed to explain himself. And that's the posture of the world. God, you have clearly done something wrong. Explain yourself to us. And unfortunately, sometimes even as God's people, we have that attitude. After this, Satan had Eve right where he wanted her. So he, he didn't need any subtlety anymore. Now he could just flat out accuse God of lying. And that's what he said. You will not surely die. And so he begins to paint God as someone who's insecure, someone who is withholding something good from Eve. Eve, do you want to be like God? Well, that sounds like a good thing. But the only way to be like God, Eve, is to eat the forbidden fruit. And do you know why God has forbidden that fruit, Eve? It's because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be wise. He wants you to be foolish. He doesn't want your eyes opened. God wants your eyes closed. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be unhappy. That's the lie that Satan told and continues to tell throughout our day. To great success, unfortunately, but also, the cost of believing that lie has been great and terrible. And it sets the stage for what happened next. Number two, the, the doom, the sin that doomed the world. The sin that doomed the world. Let's take a look at Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Very simply put, their sin is described very, very briefly. Eve went from obeying the commands of God to judging God's command to considering the benefits of disobeying God's command, and then ultimately she ate. And she gave some fruit to Adam, and he ate. And by so doing, they welcomed death into creation. You know, it's interesting. Previously, in Genesis, it was only God that saw and declared that things were good. Verse 6 is the first time that phrase is used of someone other than God. Eve saw the tree that God had forbidden, and she thought, it's good. It is good. 
She decided that it was good for food, even though God had already given her an abundance of food. It was a delight to the eyes, although she was surrounded by beauty in the garden. And it was desirable to make one wise, even though she had all that she needed. This threefold appeal of sin is something that Jesus faced and overcame when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. But it's also something the Apostle Paul condemned in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John wrote this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This temptation continues to our day. And really what it is is this. At its core, this temptation was to get something good or perceived to be good apart from God. God had not given it. God had forbidden it. What Satan wanted Eve to believe, what he wants us to believe now is there is good to be had apart from God. But it's impossible because God is the source of all good things. Satan cannot create. He can only pervert. The Bible actually doesn't identify what this fruit is. Of course, uh, at least in, in uh, the Western world, we've come to believe that it's probably an apple. Uh, some people believe that it's an apple because uh, men have an Adam's apple. And the idea is that after Adam took a bite, there was a voice from heaven that said, I hope it sticks in your throat. <laughs> it's actually not in the Bible, but it's quite possible. Actually, uh, the, the likely reason why we think it's an apple is because in Latin, the word for apple and evil are very similar. And I don't, I don't know. I actually think it's a tomato. I think it was a tomato. Because a tomato is a lie, right? Botanically, a tomato is a fruit. But I would challenge you to find any tomato-flavored candy in the store. But we're going to have to leave that up till we find out in heaven. What we don't know, we don't know a lot about Adam's role other than, than what's said here, of course, and it's not much. At the time that Eve ate the fruit, Adam was with her, and he also ate. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam wasn't, and so his guilt is greater. But one of the greatest tragedies is this. Adam failed in his responsibility to protect Eve. And it wasn't that Eve was helpless, but Adam's role as her husband was to protect his wife, and he didn't do that. God made Adam perfect. He was strong, loving, he was courageous, he was wise, he was good. He was made in the image of God and given dominion over creation. He was to rule under God's rule, but instead he submitted himself to Satan along with his wife, and he ruined everything. And the third point shows just how. The aftermath, judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. You know, as Pastor Ed said in his introduction of this series a couple weeks ago, there, there's both a cosmic aspect and a personal aspect to the storyline of the Bible. What happened in the Garden of Eden not only affected Adam and Eve, but it affects all of creation, as was read earlier. There is judgment. There is painful and sorrowful judgment, but there is also hope. Let's look at verses 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. After Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened, but not as they expected, not as Satan had told them. The knowledge that Satan promised was not the knowledge that they, that they gained. They now knew evil, but not in an intellectual way that made them wise. They knew evil in an experiential way that made them dirty. As one author aptly put it, they didn't know cancer like a doctor knows cancer. They knew cancer like a patient knows cancer. That was the lie. And that's what they got. Adam and Eve realized they were naked, and so they sat down and started sewing leaves together to cover up. And you know, their attempt to cover up their sin would be humorous if it wasn't so tragic. If you and I could picture Adam and Eve in their sinless state, it's probably best that we picture them clothed if we do that, we would see a dignity and an elegance and a strength that we have never seen in another human being. We would see perfect interaction between the two of them, honor, respect, love, and a unity of two becoming one that would shock us with its beauty. So to see them reduced to such fools is heartbreaking. It's like seeing someone that you have great respect for drunk and acting like a buffoon. It is painful to watch. And it's what God wanted to spare them and to spare us from. But at the end of the day, we'd have to acknowledge sometimes we just do what we want to do. And we experience the consequences of it. And so after some time, the Lord came walking in the garden. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve tried to hide. Probably every time the Lord had come into the garden previously, I imagine them running to him like children, young children, do when their father gets home. But not this time. That was over. They ran away from him. And you know, the Bible is clear that God knows everything. He knew the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed. But when he came into the garden, God asked questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so think about that. If God knows everything, you knew the moment that they sinned, why is he asking Adam questions like this? I believe he's asking him these questions because God was graciously seeking to bring them to repentance. He wanted them to own their sin. All Adam needed to say was, yes, Lord, I did. I was wrong. Please forgive me. But neither Adam nor Eve expressed that. Instead, they, they tried to shift the blame away from themselves. What were the immediate consequences of their sin? Shame, fear, and separation. They experienced shame for the first time ever. Contrary to the last verse of chapter 2 where it says they were naked and not ashamed. And now they were greatly ashamed. Something they had never known before. I can't even imagine what that would have felt like. You and I can't remember a time before we felt shame. And unless we've seared our consciences, from time to time we still feel shame. 
They had never felt that before. Next was fear. Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so they hid from God. You and I experience fear regularly. Shame and fear, though, which led to separation first from one another. The two had become one, and now the one had become two. And instead of putting his arm around his wife to protect her and to face the consequences together, Adam separated himself from Eve. He blamed her and he blamed God. The woman that you gave me. Not my wife, not we, the woman. Can you imagine how Eve would have felt? She would have felt nothing before but love and affection and safety in the presence of her husband. And now she was alone. Like he, he put her to the side like you put garbage at the end of a driveway. I can't even imagine how she would have felt. Adam blamed Eve, he blamed God, and he sought to protect himself by separating himself from Eve. And of course, then ultimately, they were separated from God. They tried to hide from him. The one who they were created for, the one who loved them, the one they needed the most, this was the one they were running for, was the one they should have been running to. So now we turn in verses 14 and 15 to the judgment of the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent was cursed above all the livestock and all the beasts. One scholar recommends a different translation. He said, uh, he recommends banned as opposed to cursed. And the idea there is that the judgment was the alienation of the snake from other animals. And that's quite possible because it appears that snakes don't have a lot of friends. In addition, though, the snake would move on its belly and eat dust, both of which refer to its humiliation. That eating of dust idea comes up elsewhere in the scripture as an idea of, of humiliation and judgment. And finally, God would put enmity between the snake and the woman and their offspring. The serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's offspring while he would do greater damage and bruise. The word is actually the same, though some translations uh, use the word crush because it's his head, the head of the snake. Of course, it's better to be bruised on the heel than on the head. And so in the end, of course, Satan loses. In case you weren't aware, verse 15 is actually a very significant verse in Scripture, and we'll come back to it. For the judgment on the woman, we turn to verse 16. To the woman, he, the Lord, said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's really a twofold punishment that Eve receives, just like Adam as well. The first is multiplied pain in childbirth. This wonderful gift to be fruitful and multiply was now marred with incredible pain. I've Never experienced it. I've seen it. And like other men trying to comfort their wives during delivery, I've been blamed for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Each painful delivery is a reminder of the fall. And secondly, now there is conflict with her husband. Her desire shall be contrary, and he will rule over you. The perfect harmony and love that they had experienced would be infected with selfishness and power grabbing. Pain in the gift of childbirth and pain in the gift of marriage. You and I don't know what life is like without that. 
but it was God's original design for humanity. But sin destroyed that. We turn quickly to verses 17 through 19, the judgment on Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, a twofold judgment. The first, the ground was cursed. This recurrence of pain. In pain you shall eat of the ground. And this was appropriate as eating was how they sinned. Getting food was now going to be difficult. So the whole creation was cursed. Romans 8 verses 20 to 22 say things like this. The creation was subjected to futility, is in bondage now to corruption, is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Their sin actually affected the earth, and is that, that is why we have what we call natural disasters. They might be better being called sin nature disasters. And then ultimately death, a return to the dust, an undoing of creation in a sense. God brings life from death and sin brings death from life. And pain is not mentioned, but as we often know, pain accompanies death and dying. These curses affected everyone after Adam and Eve, including all of us. Pain in childbirth, conflict in marriage, a cursed ground, universal death. Why is that? Well, there's a doctrine called the doctrine of original sin. We can't get into that, but the idea is that we are impacted, as the scriptures say, by the decisions that Adam and Eve made. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and our union with them, we are born with a sinful nature. We are born alienated from God, and we need to be born again spiritually to have a relationship with him. Some people think that's unfair, but the truth is, if you and I were the ones that were in the Garden of Eden, we would have done exactly the same thing they did. But there's something unfair, you might say, in our favor that is much greater that we'll get to shortly. And yet in the midst of all of this judgment, God shows himself to be a God of hope, a God of great hope. We begin in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them, and then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work, the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are really four signs of hope that I want to focus on. The first one is this. In verse 20, Adam called his wife Eve, the mother of all living, because life will go on. It's not all over. There will be pain in childbirth, yes, but there will be childbirth. Death eventually, but not the end of the human race. And God could have wiped them all out at that point. Number two, God provided garments. 
He did not permanently reject them, but there was a sacrifice needed to cover their sins, and only God could do that. And it required, and required in Jesus, the shedding of blood. It's that serious. Third, they were expelled from the garden, thrown out, really, which is sad but absolutely necessary in order to prevent them from eating of the tree of life because if they had done that, we would have been permanently trapped in these sinful bodies. And God has a better plan. But the key to all of it is this. In chapter 3, verse 15, the bruising of the heel, the bruising of the head. That's been called by theologians as the first preaching of the gospel because ultimately, it is a reference to Jesus Christ. As the storyline of the Bible eventually makes clear, Satan is ultimately defeated by Jesus, the seed of the woman. And Pastor Larry will cover that more next week. But there is hope because there is a Savior who Paul calls the second Adam or the final Adam, Jesus, who obeyed and whose obedience brings life to all rather than death. And Romans 5.17 puts it this way. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We will reign righteously because of Jesus. All of the sorrow and the misery that their sin caused and now has been piled up with one of their sons murdering the other so quickly. A few chapters later, God destroying everyone but Noah and his family. So what do we make of all this? In the storyline of the Bible, the fall is what makes the next two parts, redemption and restoration, necessary. It explains why we live in a world that is full of both beauty and ugliness, love and hate, health and sickness. When you and I understand the rebellion of our ancestors, one thing becomes very clear. It is not God's fault. It is our fault. You know, there's a verse in the Old Testament that I love to quote because I think it's so important for us to understand what is the heart of God in all of this? Because if we miss this, if we don't understand the posture that God is taking in this, we're going to believe Satan. It's Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. And this, you hear the heart of God coming out here. Oh, speaking of his people, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Why? that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. That's what he wants. That's what any good parent wants, and God is a perfect parent. He longs to bless. That's his nature. And the only thing stopping us from receiving God's blessing is rejecting him and sinning. We are still faced with the same choice that Adam and Eve were faced with in the garden. Will we trust God or not? Will we obey him or will we do our own thing? Will we trust him or will we seek good apart from God? Good that we think, but he's not giving us. Do you believe God can be trusted or not? We don't have all the answers that we want. There are many questions about this passage that we couldn't possibly cover in this amount of time. But God has given us everything that we need to know. And I suspect more than that, he's probably given us everything that we can handle. To paraphrase the uh, famous line from the movie, we can't handle the truth. We can't handle more of the truth than God has given us, or he would have given it to us. So here's the question. 
What will we do? What will you do with the truth that God has revealed to us? I would encourage three things. The first, consider the folly of not trusting in God. It's just stupid. Are you a moron? Am I a moron? God help us. I hope not. Consider the pain and the misery that sin has brought. In the world, in your life, don't be fooled by it. And I would say this. This is my number one goal for all of us from this message. Resolve to hate sin more than ever before. If you do not hate sin in your life, and I, I have to confess that we don't, we don't hate it as much as we should, but we need to hate it. And if you don't, then beg the Lord to open your eyes to see the hideousness of sin, your sin, not just the sin of the people that you live with, your sin, the sin that you might overlook, the sin that you might just, justify, you might minimize. You and I need to hate the sin that brought all of the misery in this world and that now hinders us from shining the light of the gospel to the people around us that so desperately need it. Resolve to hate sin. In a moment, our prayer team is going to be up front and in the balconies and the overflow rooms. I would urge you, allow them to pray for you. Come, share whatever you want. They would love to minister to you in prayer. We need God's help to do this. It's so tremendously important. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I think all of us would confess that we don't see sin the way that we should. It is far too easy to justify it, to minimize it, to say it's not all that big a deal. Because sometimes in your mercy, we don't see the consequences of our sin. Maybe we don't see it for a long time. Maybe it's hidden from us in some way. And so we believe the lie of the evil one that it's not a big deal. Maybe we got the good that we wanted even though you weren't giving it to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see just how wicked and evil and rebellious and filthy our sin is. But then, not dwell on that, but dwell on the powerful, wonderful, sacrificial, gracious, and good sacrifice that Jesus made to cleanse us from all of our sin. Father, accomplish that in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.